Institute, which seeks to educate rabbis about halakhic solutions to the aguna problem, women who are chained to a marriage they don't want to be in. His writings on contemporary Jewish thought and Zionism have appeared in The Lair House, Erut Sheva, and Akdamot. His forthcoming book, Torah Goes Forth from Zion, Essays on the Thought of Rav Kook and Rav Shagar, will be published in the fall. Oh, I didn't even know about that. Amazing. Before making Aliyah, he served as the rabbi of Cedar sinai Synagogue in Cleveland, Ohio. He has taught in a variety of adult educational settings, such as the Wexner Heritage Program and the Hartman Institute. He received his rabbinic ordination from Rabbi Zalman uh, Nehemia Goldberg. He should have a refuah shlema. He's in the hospital in critical condition. He, he, actually, he actually passed away just about an hour or two ago. Oh, my goodness. Really? Oh, Baruch Dynamet. Oh, wow. The sheep even... to be for his, uh, you know, Oh, wow. Okay. And is it public what he passed of? I don't know. Okay. I, okay. But, okay. So, uh, okay. Thank you for sharing that. So his ordination is from Reb Zalman Nechemia Goldberg, who just passed away an hour ago, and from Yeshivat Chovei Torah, where I also studied. And um, knowing Zach well, he's not only a mensch, but a great scholar. And so this is a wonderful opportunity uh, to think about an issue that we oftentimes don't get beyond Rambam's hierarchy of tzedakah or something, but to think on a really deep level. So with that, please join me in welcoming on your muted applause, but you can mute while you can clap while you're muted. Rabbi Zachary Trubov. <laughs> shalom, shalom. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much, uh, Rav Shmuley. And uh, this, uh, the learning that we do together should be Li'ilui uh, Nishmat, Rav Zalman Goldberg, who was a... Uh, a truly great scholar uh, and rabbi, rabbinic leader, um, who dedicated his efforts to helping others, others that were often excluded by even his, his own community, um, just a tremendously humble and, and giving individual. So we're gonna be looking at this topic of reexamining our moral obligation to the other. Uh, and I wanna start by saying everybody has an other. Everybody has somebody outside their, their moral circle, their, their moral concern, whether we like to admit it or, or not. And I think in our, in our current moment, when we live in a time of, of such great uncertainty, uh, and there's so much polarization both in America and around the world, what often happens is people hunker down all the more so in different ideological camps. And anybody who's outside of our particular camp is often viewed as the enemy who potentially threatens our own way of life. It's easy in moments like our own to really just pull in and to dedicate our moral energies only to those who think like us, who look like us, who act like us, who hold our values. Uh, but I think that this would actually be deeply problematic. And it's something Hazal, the rabbis of the Talmud understood. Uh, and it's something they grappled with again and again uh, throughout a wide variety of, uh, of rabbinic texts. In this year, we're going to look at a series of agadot uh, that relate to the mitzvah tzedakah, but we're going to look at them through the lens of, of three very different thinkers. Uh, Emmanuel Levinas, great French uh, philosopher. Uh, Slavoj Žižek, um, another great philosopher and, and cultural critic and very provocative in his own right. Uh, and the great Hasidic uh, Rebbe, Rebbe Nachman of Breslov. Each one of them offers a, a very interesting and provocative lens about this question of why we exclude certain others from our moral concern and, and what we can do to address this problem, and specifically how tzedakah might enable us to uh, address this problem. So to, to begin our thinking on this, we're going to look at a, uh, a piece from the Mishnah and, and the Gemara, one that raises 
uh, essential questions about uh, uh, Tzedakah. They appear in Masechet Bava Batra. Masechet Bava Batra is in Seder Nezikin, which focuses on damages, tort laws. Uh, the first chapter of Bava Batra actually deals with laws related to neighbors, neighbors who live in the same courtyard. Uh, and the first chapter deals with questions such as where can walls be built on the shared property and where can trees be planted, knowing that a tree in one place might interfere with a neighbor's property elsewhere. Uh, but the mission we're going to look at uh, deals with this question or this issue that neighbors can force other neighbors to build a gatehouse uh, for the courtyard. Uh, and the mission opens up by saying that the neighbors may coerce one of the other neighbors to participate in the building of a gatehouse uh, for the courtyard. And Rabbi Shimon Gamliel just adds that uh, not all courtyards need a gatehouse. But the, the straightforward reading of the Mishnah is that a courtyard can have a gate and you can actually force other people who live in your, in your block to do this. And again, you don't, if you live in suburbia, you don't really have these kind of sort of like gated uh, communities, right? Because every house is on its own plot of land. But in the times of, of the Talmud, people lived in a much more crowded environment multiple buildings like sort of offset of a, of a courtyard and under those conditions a gatehouse uh, could be built and you could force others to build it. Now it's interesting when you get to the Gemara there uh, it seems to somewhat question or, or at least undermine perhaps the conclusion of the Mishnah that you can force other people in the, in the, in the courtyard to, to build this gatehouse. Uh, and the, uh, the Gemara says as follows, it says uh, the Mishnah seems to indicate that a gatehouse is an improvement. It's a good thing. Because if it wasn't a good thing, why else would you be able to compel, force other people in your neighborhood uh, to build it? However, the Gemara questions that a gatehouse is a good thing because it says that there was a case where a certain pious man, a chassid, who lived in a particular neighborhood, what would happen is Elijah, Eliyahu, the prophet, would come and visit this pious chassid, this pious rabbi every day, right? In the Talmud, there are all these stories of Eliyahu coming and visiting with different rabbis, uh, studying Torah with them, sharing insights with them. And it's clearly a, a wondrous thing that this particular rabbi has this relationship with Eliyahu. And not, not only does he see him, but he sees him every day. Uh, but after the gatehouse was built, Eliyahu no longer came uh, to converse with him, no longer came to speak with this particular rabbi. Uh, and the Gemara sees this as potentially a rebuke that it was the building of the gatehouse that stopped Eliyahu from coming anymore uh, to visit uh, the rabbi. Uh, and Rashi, in, in his commentary here, um, says something very interesting. He basically states that the reason Eliyahu stops coming once the gatehouse is built is because the gatehouse serves a, uh, a very problematic function for this community. Uh, before the gatehouse was built, the poor could come into the courtyard and ask for tzedakah, and they could receive tzedakah. But once the gatehouse is put up, the poor people can't get in anymore. It's basically become a gated community. Uh, and if the poor people can't come in, they're not getting tzedakah. They're not having their, their needs met by any of the individuals in this community, let alone this, this particular rabbi. Um, and that seems to be the case as to why Eliyahu stopped coming, right? That this building of the gatehouse was actually morally problematic. It built a wall that keep, kept people out who desperately needed assistance uh, from those inside. And I'll, I'll just point out, because again, we know whether it's in the Nevi'im or the, the Prophets or in the Hasidic tradition, there's always this link between the moral uh, and the spiritual, that right, moral sins have spiritual consequences. Right here, the moral sin of building the gatehouse actually keeps 
Eliyahu, it keeps the divine presence away in, in one form or another. And there's a, uh, there's a Hasidic story I used to love to, telling at my shul about a, a poor man on Yom Kippur uh, who wants to daven at the, at the synagogue in his town. And it happens to be a wealthy town and a wealthy synagogue, even though he doesn't have much money. Uh, and when he wants to come to the synagogue to daven there, to pray there on Yom Kippur, uh, there's a guard standing out front uh, who won't let him inside. Uh, and why won't he be let inside? Because he doesn't have the money to buy a ticket. So the poor man ends up not being able to daven in shul on Yom Kippur, the one day he wants to be with his community to connect with God, and he walks away dejected and, and sad. As he's walking away from the shul feeling pretty terrible, he happens to encounter the Ribona Shalom. God appears to him. And God asks the poor man, he says, well, why are you so sad? It's Yom Kippur, it's the day of forgiveness. Uh, and the man says to God, he says, you know, all he wanted to do was be in shul and, and be able to, to talk to you with, my, with the community. Um, but I, I'm not able to do that. They won't let me inside. Uh, and God turns to the poor man and he says, well, you know what? Don't worry about it. They don't let me inside there either. Right? And again, what this illustrates is this, this fundamental truth that when you exclude others, when you hurt others, um, it has spiritual consequences. And again, that's, I think, in many ways, the, the straightforward way to read this part of the, uh, the Gemara here. Um, but what's interesting uh, is when you look a little bit farther, you realize that it's, it's a bit more, more complicated than this. Uh, and in fact, the Gemara's conclusion still seems to be, as you read on here, that you can build a gatehouse. Uh, and the Rambam himself, Paskins, decides in the Halacha uh, that you can force your neighbors uh, to build a gatehouse, um, which seems deeply you know, problematic. I think there's a lot of people who would want to read this section from the Talmud and take away this very straightforward conclusion. Walls are bad. Walls keep people out who are suffering. Right? We got to tear down the walls in our communities, in our, in our country. Right? I think that's a very natural uh, and legitimate uh, re response to this. But at the same time, the Gemara is also challenging that when it concludes that you actually can build a gatehouse uh, for the courtyard, even though it may come with certain spiritual uh, consequences. Um, and that's the question I, I, I really want us to um, um, spend some time uh, fo focusing on. Um, that Chazal have this awareness that you can build gates, even though it potentially means keeping poor people out, people who are in need, people who have a moral obligation to. And I want to try to understand why it is Chazal think this way, why it is that we perhaps maybe can't avoid to leave certain people outside of our, our moral concern, and at the same time, how do Chazal grapple with this? Because that certainly cannot be the end of the story, right? The end of the Jewish story can't be we build a wall to keep the poor people out and that's it, right? If that's the end of the Jewish story, then, then we're all doomed. Um, so that's the, the, the question that we're, we're going to try to dig down and, and understand a little bit more. To, to, to do this, uh, we are going to look at, as I said, three different thinkers, three different modern, uh, more or less modern thinkers. Uh, the first is Emmanuel Levinas, uh, who is a name you may have heard before. He was a, a great Jewish uh, French philosopher, really one of the most influential uh, secular philosophers even in, of, the, uh, of the 20th century. His thoughts had a tremendous influence, still has an influence on what we call you know, continental slash European uh, uh, philosophy. Uh, he himself was born in Lithuania, but moves to France. He is actually in a, in a, like a prisoner of war during the Holocaust, so he doesn't experience it directly, but he does experience World War II in its, in its totality. Uh, and much of his writings that he really dedicated his energy to after, after the war 
are about this basic question of uh, what are our obligations towards our fellow human beings in this world? Right? What are our moral obligations in the wake of, of the horrors of, of World War II uh, and the Holocaust? And much of his thought is about trying to make ethics primary to secular philosophy. Uh, which hadn't necessarily been the case before the war. Right? His teacher is, is Heidegger, who a German philosopher who is somewhat supportive of the Nazis. Uh, and secular philosophy was essentially a handmaiden to some of the horrors of World War II. Uh, and Levinas is really trying to offer a, a, corrective, um, a corrective to that. And to a certain extent, what his philosophy does is a secularization of Judaism by, to a certain extent, reducing it to ethics. On the other hand, as we know, the ethics is central to Judaism. So what he does, I think, is still very much authentically emerging from the Jewish tradition, right? Rabbi Akiva in the Talmud, when asked, what is the most important pasuk of the, of the Torah? He says, that you should love your, your fellow as yourself, right? When Hillel is approached by the convert and asked uh, to be taught the Torah on one foot um, as conditioned for his conversion, Hillel agrees to it, and he tells them, that which is hateful to you, do not do to others, right? So this idea of reducing Torah to ethics, I don't think is the, um, is the worst thing in the world by, by far. Uh, and that's to a certain extent what Levinas' uh, philosophy is, is, attempting, uh, is attempting to do. And, and for him, I would say the, the starting point of Judaism's moral philosophy is that human beings are created B'Tselem Elohim, in, in the image of God, Right, this idea emerges from from Rashid, from Genesis, but it's it's certainly all over Tanakh and 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 rabbinic thought uh, as well. Right, verse from from Rashid: Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in is in his image that he make human. Be fruitful then and multiply. Right, we are creating the image of God. Right, to shed the blood of a human being is to shed the blood of that which is of infinite uh, infinite worth and 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 value. Uh, for Levinas, right, he takes this very simultaneously that human beings are creating the image of God, because if that's the case, then our encounter with human beings is on some level an encounter with transcendence, with something, you know, that's beyond us, uh, something that is commanding and, and, and even maybe threatening to our own existence. Uh, and for Levinas, that all gets encapsulated with the metaphor that he uses of this encounter with the face. When we encounter another person, when we encounter uh, their face, that it's almost a, a revelatory commanding experience. And again, he comes from a, a phenomenological tradition within uh, continental philosophy. So a lot of his language sounds, I would say, poetic, and it, it might even sound a little overwrought to a, uh, an American audience. Um, but wait, basically what he's pointing out on, on, a, on a fundamental level, it's not easy to look at somebody in the face. If you ever try to look somebody in the eyes, especially a stranger, right, there's something about us that kind of recoils from it. It's almost just too much to be able to, uh, to take it in. Uh, and Levinas sees within that something very, very profound. Uh, so just a couple of citations to kind of give you a taste of this from Totality and Infinity is the major philosophical work in which he explores a lot of this. Uh, he says, the face resists possession, right? There's something about the face that is beyond our comprehension, our understanding. We, we can't fully grasp it. Um, it resists my powers to sort of objectify it or control it. Uh, in its epiphany, right, it's almost revelatory, the way the face uh, uh, appears to us and the way that we experience it. Uh, the sensible, still graspable, turns into total resistance to the grasp. This mutation can occur only by the opening of a new dimension, right? The, the face is beyond us, we can't really make sense of it, and it almost opens us up to something 
uh, fundamentally uh, different, something fundamentally other. Uh, for Levinas, the, that experience of otherness, of transcendence within the face, that on some levels is an experience of God, uh, he sees as a revelation, and it's a revelation of the commandment, lo tirzach, that you shall not kill, right? That's the, what we hear from the face. That's what we hear when we look into the, the visage of the, uh, of the divine image in the human, right? It's an order. Uh, there's a commandment in the appearance of the face as if a master spoke to me. However, at the same time, the face of the other is destitute. It is poor. For whom I can do all and to whom I owe all. And me, whoever I may be, uh, but as a first person, I am he who finds the resources to respond to that call. Right, so we see the face, we feel the commanding nature of its presence, telling us not to kill, um, that we have this moral obligation to the person in front of us. At the same time, the face also telegraphs the individual or the other's vulnerability, that we could kill them if we really wanted to, if we tried, if we were gonna try to perpetrate violence uh, against them. And that sense of being responsible to them in their vulnerability, in their otherness, uh, is what we call ethics. That's what we call uh, morality for, for Lebanon. It's all rooted uh, in that very experience. Uh, just to kind of flesh this out a little bit more, how he sees this emerging from the Jewish tradition and what the implications of it, uh, I'll just give you one more quote from, uh, from Levinas. He gave a lot of interviews. So there's a lot of collections of his interviews. Interviews are sometimes a little bit of a clearer articulation of his, uh, of his thought. Um, he's asked, uh, text two here, does your conception of the face have its roots in Jewish theology? Uh, and here's how he answers. He says, in the Old Testament, there is the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. This does not mean simply that you are not to go around firing a gun all the time. It refers rather to the fact that in the course of your life, in different ways, you kill someone. For example, when we sit down at the table in the morning and drink coffee, we kill an Ethiopian who doesn't have any coffee. It is in this sense that the commandment must be understood. There is also the phrase, thou shalt love thy neighbor. It is expressed in several ways. There is also, thou shalt love the stranger. So what Levinas is saying here is that the commandment of not killing the other, of, of being morally responsible to the other in their vulnerability, uh, it's not just about don't, not doing violence to them. It, it actually means much more than that. It means we have a responsibility to help them, to sustain them um, in all that we can and in all that they, that they need, that, that the other makes a total moral claim on us. We owe them whatever we can do uh, to help them. Uh, and he takes us to a real extreme here. He, he says that if you drink coffee in the morning, right, you're basically killing an Ethiopian who doesn't have any coffee, which on the one hand kind of sounds absurd to us. Um, but what Levinas is getting at is I think this very deep Jewish insight that we are always responsible for the world, right? It's not something that we can ever escape. Um, it's not easy because we feel it at every moment. And oftentimes, as we're gonna discuss, uh, we do our best to deny that sense of absolute responsibility because it comes with a lot of guilt, but that's what it means to be Jewish. You are responsible, right? That's the theme of Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, right? You are responsible, you don't have a choice. Um, most of us don't like this, 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 this absolute weight of moral responsibility that Levinas is talking about here. Rav Shmuley is, is one of the few people I know who actually attempts to live up to this, right? To just, he, you feel that, that moral obligation and, and, and it's continuous and it's absolute and you just do your best um, to serve it, knowing that oftentimes we will fall short. Um, most of us aren't like Rav Shmuley. We, we, we kind of know we should, but we don't really want to go that far. We don't want to live with life with the realization that when I have coffee in the morning, that there's real consequences for that perhaps somewhere else in the, uh, in the world.
Now, what's interesting is that even though Levinas says we have this absolute obligation to the other, uh, at the same time, he is aware that you can't live your life like that all the time in your day-to-day -day life with that kind of awareness. Um, because we're just one human being at the end of the day. Uh, and as he says there, if there were only two of us in the world, you and I, then uh, there wouldn't be um, any problem, or, uh, oops, sorry, there would be no question then my system would work perfectly, he says, right? Because if there's one other person out there, I owe them uh, as whatever I can do, and there's just one person, I, I can direct my efforts to them. I'm responsible to the other and everything. But if we're not only two, because if we're at least three, we are now a threesome, we are a humanity. And, and this is the problem that Levinas understands, is that our absolute obligation really can only play out to one person at a time at most. A, and the world is full of more people. So if that's the case, then we always have a challenge. We always have to decide if and where we're gonna direct our moral energies, knowing that somebody's gonna get left out. And he says, in approaching in charity, the first one to come along, the I runs the risk of being uncharitable toward the third party, right? If you're gonna to give to this person, that effectively means you're not gonna to give, to be able to give to another. Uh, and that's what it means to live in the real world, even though we have these unending uh, moral responsibilities. Um, it's very, very challenging what he's laying out here. He says in the, in, in the last text here, if there was no order of justice, there would be no limit to my responsibility. Justice for him is sort of politics and the everyday life of the world in which we live, the reality of the world. Uh, and he goes on to say that we live in a world of citizens. We don't live not only in the order of the face-to-face, -face, right? Face-to-face -face means absolute responsibility. That's what we kind of know, but it's not the way we live our lives because you can't live your lives that way. The world's too many people. Uh, the world's too uh, complex. Now, essentially what, what Levinas is, is offering us here is, is a bit of a paradox in that we have this absolute obligation to the other, uh, and we must do all that we can for them. That's the ideal. Uh, but at the same time, we live in a world where this isn't possible. We have to always be balancing our, our moral obligations towards many different people. So for Levinas, if we think back to that, that Gemara we saw, we build that gate because we simply have no choice. Uh, we're human. We have ethical obligations towards our family, towards our neighbors. And there are a lot of situations where they're going to have to come first. And we are nearly all times forced to privilege some uh, over others. However, even though Levinas allows for the fact that you're gonna have to build a gate and there may be others that are out there who you cannot help, he also makes it clear in spite of this that we can never forget our obligations towards the other, our moral obligations to those beyond our gate, right? The poor, the needy, the homeless, the refugee. Uh, and for Levinas, it would be the highest evil to think that we can build that gate and then absolve ourselves of all responsibility to the other outside of it. Uh, and for Levinas, we should feel guilty perpetually that we can and should do more, even if we don't feel that we're able to, because that guilt is a sign that we feel the moral obligation that comes with, uh, with being human. And I just wanna add one more point to that that I think is significant, even though he doesn't say this explicitly, but I think it's the implication of his, of his moral philosophy. If I'm always responsible to the other, um, but I can't live up to that responsibility at all times, I'm gonna feel guilty. And what's gonna happen is that seeing a poor person is probably going to make me feel exceptionally guilty. Because though I may try to do something to help them, maybe give them money, maybe I'm fighting for, for social political change to help them, but in the end, I know in that moment, I will most often not be able to transform 
their lives. I can't just make them no longer poor and give them a, a whole life again. Um, and knowing this has an important consequence because if seeing a poor person makes me feel guilty, and I know I should help them like Levinas says, but I can never help them completely, then what's gonna probably happen is I'm gonna go out of my way not to see people who are in need. Because if I have to see them, I'm gonna feel guilty and I, and I don't wanna feel guilty. So I think this point is, is important, even though Levinas doesn't say it, is that, is that we keep the other away, the one who is in need, because we don't wanna feel guilty, because we know we're supposed to help them, and we don't really know how, and we don't really know if we can, and we don't wanna feel that way. So we just try to keep them out of our sight uh, entirely. So th this is the approach of Levinas, and we're gonna come back to it. Um, what I wanna look at now is the approach of, uh, of, uh, of, of Slavoj Žižek, which in many ways, uh, compliments that of Levinas, even though in his own writings he often disagrees with, uh, with Levinas on this. Uh, Slavoj Žižek is a very interesting philosopher, cultural critic. He's often associated with, with what we call post, what's often referred to as post-structuralism or post-modernism. And you, you could certainly make the argument that he's the most influential philosopher and social critic alive today, particularly outside of America. Um, and his writings combine the psychoanalytic philosophy of Jacques Lacan with Hegel and Marx. Uh, and what he basically uses all these thinkers to do is launch a comprehensive critique of basically every truth we take for granted in modern life. Uh, while at the same time, he also tries to point us to important moral truths that we've often ignored and that modernity has, has often ignored. Um, and for Zizek, what he points out is most of what we consider uh, morality, uh, what we might call liberal morality, modern morality, uh, is based on empathy and identification with the other, right? We do good for others because we feel their pain, because we identify with them. We see them within us uh, to a certain extent, one extent or, or another. Now, th this may sound kind of obvious, right? Yeah, that's what, that's what morality is, right? You care for the other, you love the other, you feel for the other, you identify for the other. But Zizek points out that that actually can be uh, problematic. Um, because basically it, it has a huge uh, blind spot. Um, and what Mara Rudy here, uh, who's a scholar who writes on, on Zizek amongst others, she summarizes his argument um, uh, quite nicely. Um, she says here in the bolded part, she says, according to Zizek, such an ethics of, of identification and empathy relies on the assumption that we can treat the other as a fellow human being, as someone just like us when in fact we have no foundation for positing such a platform of commonality, right? It sounds nice to say like we're all human, we're all the same, right? If we, if we get beyond that which makes us different, we'll find all that, that we share. Um, but the reality is you can easily make the argument that what human beings, um, um, what makes us different from each other is far, far, far greater uh, oftentimes uh, than what we share, at least how we experience other, other human beings. And basically then what Zizek is saying is that if our morality is only based on identification and empathy, it only works to the extent that we can, as Rudy says, sideline everything about the other uh, that is not compatible with our inherited conception of what it means to be a human being. Basically, if, if my morality is based on empathy and identification, then the only way it works is if the person, if I can get rid of everything about that person that challenges my empathy and, and identification for them. Um, and Rudy goes on to say, regard, with Zizek, this is exactly why our empathy tends to falter the moment the other no longer makes sense to us, the moment he or she deviates from our understanding of what constitutes reasonable human conduct, as is the case when we are confronted by a suicide bomber, a religious fanatic, or someone else 
whose actions correspond to our definition, or don't correspond to our definition of acceptable behavior, our well-meaning rhetoric of tolerance. Meaning for Zizek, uh, morality works right up until you encounter the monster, right up until you encounter somebody who defies your understanding of what it means to be human. Uh, and when we encounter uh, the monster, um, we don't wanna have anything to do with them. We don't feel any kind of ethical responsibility to them uh, whatsoever. Um, and you might think, well, you know, maybe there's a few monsters out there in the world, but there's, there's, there's not that many of them. Um, but as Zizek points out, that's not exactly the case, that we exclude so many people from our moral concern, again, because we feel that they are uh, monstrous, that they scare us, that they're different, that there's something weird or, or very strange uh, 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 about them. Um, and that happens all the time. I mean, there's always others who essentially function uh, as, uh, again, you know, monsters, uh, monsters for us. Um, I'll give you a, um, um, uh, well, I'll read this Zizek who says it himself. He says, uh, this is a quote from his book dealing with the, the refugee problem. And again, for refugees, right, when people, the rhetoric that is often used about refugees, again, prevents people from seeing them as, as helpless, vulnerable human beings. It almost turns them into these like, you know, dangerous, scary, uh, potential monsters and threats. Uh, he says, universality is a universality of strangers. At the end of the day, we're all strangers to each other, of individuals reduced uh, to the abyss of impenetrability in relation not only to others, but also to themselves. We don't understand ourselves most of the time, and we certainly don't understand others. Uh, and that's why he says the privileged way to reach a neighbor is not that of empathy, but of trying to, or, or trying to even understand them, but rather a disrespectful laughter, which makes fun both of them and of us, right? The only way to overcome the sense of the monster is to just realize we're all kind of monstrous. We're all kind of strange and weird and to be able to acknowledge that and laugh at that. And that's the only way uh, he says we're able to really overcome this, uh, uh, this fear uh, that we have of the monster um, that forces us to exclude them uh, from the, uh, you know, from our, our, our concern. Now, part of the reason I'm very drawn to this, Zizek himself is not Jewish, though he does write a lot about um, uh, Judaism in certain places and, and stuff like that. Um, but the reason I think it's so interesting for us as Jews uh, is, do you know who was the other, who was the monster uh, for most of the last 2000 years for, for, for Europe and, and, Christ, and Christianity? Right, it was the Jew. Uh, we were the other. We were the one outside of their moral concern. We were the one who were not part of their, you know, covenantal, uh, you know, community, uh, not deserving of their love. And because we were monstrous, right, we could be treated as such. Uh, and I want to give an example of this that's kind of shocking, but it, it gets to the heart of, of of sort of the challenge of of, of what happens when we look at empathy or morality simply through the lens of, of of empathy and identification. Um, this is a, a painting from the 14th century France. It's called the Jew Dragon, uh, and I think it's in a I think it's in a cathedral. I'd have to double check, but you see, this is the Jew here, uh, and you can see it presents it in the most horrific and monstrous way, right? It's I, there's different appendages and limbs, and it's devouring people, right? This is the way the Jews were viewed in, in sort of the European Christian imagination: completely other and completely uh, uh, completely uh, uh, monstrous. Uh, and so, this idea that there's an other out there who's a monster. Right, who we exclude from our moral concern, I think, is a part of the universal, you know, human condition, uh, and it's something that we have to take very seriously. Because again, we all have others. We all have others who we see uh, as monsters in, in one way or another. So, just just to summarize for the moment, 
going back to that Gemara, the original Gemara, for Zizek, we build the gate and we're allowed to build the gate uh, to keep the monsters out. Not necessarily because they're evil, though they, we may think of that too, but because their differences and strangeness and otherness is traumatic uh, when we experience too much of it too intensely. That's why we're pushing the other way. They're monstrousness, we just can't handle it. As a result, we don't want to give to those who are not like us, right? That's why we build the gate. We don't want to give to those that scare us or shock us uh, with their difference. That's the, that's the approach of Zizek. And for Levinas, we build that gate because we have no choice. We can't help everyone. That's the reality of being human and juggling all the competing moral obligations we have to different people in the world. But this still doesn't absolve us of our responsibility to the other, to the face of the one who is in need. Inevitably, we feel guilty uh, that we can't help everybody, as Levinas points out, and that guilt causes us uh, time and time again to push the other even farther away so that we don't have to, uh, to, uh, to feel any, uh, any guilt. And I think if we go back to the story too, right, the poor people, the homeless, right, they often embody both of these uh, elements for us. Right? The homeless is, is other in a monstrous sense. Um, they look destitute. They don't, you don't feel that they're part of society, their clothes are torn, they're dirty, perhaps they might have mental illness, they might be, uh, have, be addicted to drugs, right? There's, there's something monstrous that makes it very difficult when you, when you encounter somebody who's, who, who's homeless. And at the same time, you feel this tremendous guilt uh, because you know you should help them. How could you not? They're a human being who's, who's, who's in terrible shape, uh, but you don't know how, and you don't know if you can, and you know even if you tried, you probably couldn't transform everything. So what, what are you gonna do at the end of the day? Right, so I think the poor, the homeless, often embodies both of these in very profound ways. That's why gated communities exist to keep them, you know, to keep them out. Uh, the same with refugees; they often embody the monstrousness and the fears that we project on them, uh, and we feel so guilty because we know they have nothing and they're dying literally, uh, and we don't know what to do about that. We don't know how to what we can do to help them and change their situation. And again, with that comes all this guilt, so we just try to push them even farther out of our our, our, our mind. So. Because Chazal, because the rabbis understood that we live in a world of gates and that will at least cause us at times to exclude others from a moral concern, uh, they still want to try to understand what do we do about this? Because again, this can't be the end uh, of, of the story. Uh, and what it does is that if you live in a world of gates, it makes the mitzvah of tzedakah very, very complicated. Uh, and the rabbis understand this. I want to look at two Talmudic stories real briefly that show the challenges of tzedakah in a world of, of, of gates. It's the rabbis almost ironically struggling with, you could say, um, Levinas and Zizek, uh, even though obviously they lived much, much later. But you'll see how in these two stories of tzedakah, these are basically tzedakah fails. These are places where tzedakah did not happen the way it should have because of the issues that uh, Levinas and Zizek raised. So the first story, I'm not gonna read it inside because we don't have time. Uh, it's about Rabbi Yehuda Hanasti, a uh, great rabbinic leader after the destruction of the, of the Second Temple. He's the one who really leads the project of the Mishnah, of organizing it and codifying it. Uh, and he's a significant rabbinic leader uh, in terms of shaping rabbinic and Jewish culture going forward uh, for, 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 for centuries. Uh, and what happens in is, is in a time of famine, Rabbi Huda Nasi, who's the rabbinic leader and he's wealthy, so he's a political leader as well, he opens the storehouses of grain, but only for those who are learned in Torah. He will not give any grain in a time of famine, even, if, even to Jews, uh, if they are an Am Haaretz, which is the rabbinic terminology for someone who's a, a Jewish illiterate, who doesn't know anything. Uh, he basically reviewed a Nazi's only going to give tzedakah to people like him. And to a certain extent, this, this makes sense because Rebbe is an ideological visionary. He's trying to reconstitute Judaism. 
And the tendency of ideological projects uh, is they exclude a lot, a lot of people oftentimes, uh, because they're trying to bring about a certain vision of the world. And that vision often to be imposed on reality means pushing certain people out of the way. And what happens in the story here is that one of his students, Rabbi Yonatan ben Amram, pretends to be an Amma Aretz and goes to Rebbe to beg for food. Um, and what happens is when Rebbe sees him, he doesn't recognize him, he initially refuses. He doesn't want to give him food because he thinks he's an Amma Aretz. He doesn't deserve it. And Rebbe Yonatan says, well, don't give me because I'm learned, because I'm not, he's pretending. Feed me as the dog and the raven are fed. What he's saying to Rebbe is, if I'm not human to you, because I'm not a learned rabbi, at least show kindness to me as you would an animal. And with that, Rebbe is willing to give him food. But the story goes on to say that Rebbe actually feels upset. He feels bad that he gave food to who he thought was an Amharetz. And what happens is his son then goes check, goes and checks and discovers that it wasn't really an Amharetz. It was Rebbe Yonatan in disguise. Uh, and Rebbe then feels uh, uh, better because he realized he didn't have to give to the other at the end of the day. He didn't have to give to this Amharetz. And for Rebbe, it's clear. His other is the Amharetz. They are his monsters in the sense of Zizek. Uh, and therefore, therefore, they are outside the gates uh, for him. Um, and what's interesting is for him, he has a good reason for this, why they're monstrous. At the end of the story, he actually declares here in the bolded part, he says, it is the unlearned, the Amharetz, who brings misfortune to the world, right? He thinks the Am Amharits are, are the problem. They are the ones undermining the ideal society he's trying to. They're, they're wicked to a certain extent. He said, basically, their profound ignorance, their lack of reverence for Torah, makes them fundamentally opposed to Rabbi highest values. And as a result, they're the enemy, the ones getting in the way of the better world Rabbi is trying to create. And therefore, they're outside of his gate. They're monsters. They're beyond his moral concern. Right? It's a duck of failure here, clearly. And it's fascinating how the Gemara is sort of aware of all these dynamics, uh, even as it presents it in a slightly, you know, neutral fashion. Um, in the next story, a story from the Yerushalmi, this is a story of uh, Reish Lakish and Rabbi Yochanan, a, another a pair of famous uh, rabbinic sages, a chavruta, a, a study a study partners. Uh, and they were traveling together uh, to go to the, the baths of, of Tiberia, the hot, the hot springs. And while they're about to walk into the baths, they encounter a beggar. Uh, and the beggar does what beggars do. He asks them for money. Uh, and they say to him uh, that when we come out of the bath, we will give it to you. I mean, we're not going to give you money now, but we'll give you when we're done. We want to just go, we want to go in the bath now. We want to relax. However, when they came out, they discovered that the beggar had died. Uh, and this was kind of a shock for them. They said, since we did not merit to give to him in his life, let's at least do so in death. We didn't give him tzedakah when he was alive, so let's try to do tzedakah for him now. We'll take care of him, make sure he gets a proper burial. And as they're preparing the body to be washed, they are looking under his clothing, and they discover he's got a wallet on his neck, this beggar, with 600 dinar inside, uh, which means he wasn't really poor at the end of the day. He was deceiving them. Uh, and then they say this fascinating line. They say, blessed is God that he chose in the sages in their words or as Rabbi Abahu uh, said in the name of Rabbi Eliezer, we must thank those beggars who are liars. Or we have to thank the beggars who are liars because basically they get us off the hook. Right? The fact we know there are some lying beggars out there means we don't have to feel guilty if we don't give to, uh, to everybody. Right? It's, it's, a really, um, it's a really fascinating uh, uh, Gemara. Um, they know they're morally obligated to this guy, but they don't give to him when they should. Uh, when they come out and they see that he's dead, they feel clearly feel guilty about it. In the Levinasian sense, they kind of feel like murderers. They know they should have helped him, 
Um, they feel tremendous guilt, but then they discover, well, he didn't really deserve it in the first place, and therefore they can finally get off their guilt. They don't have to feel bad that they had this, again, what was clearly another tzedakah uh, failure where they failed to give to the other because they didn't want to feel the guilt and they, they, they wanted to push him outside their, um, uh, their, their, uh, their moral, uh, moral concern. And again, we do this all the time, right? We make these excuses about a poor person. Uh, they're lazy. They don't really need the money. If I, if I give them money, they're gonna, it's just going to fuel a drug habit. We use these excuses to get us off the hook so that we have that guilt, that tremendous moral obligation we have, um, so we can push the other way and, and not feel bad about it. So we live in a world with gates because we couldn't exist. We couldn't be human beings and have a human society without it. Uh, it's easy to give tzedakah to someone like you, as I pointed out, someone we can identify with, someone we can relate to, someone who's part of our ideological worldview. It's easy to find excuses why we don't have to give to the other so that we can avoid feeling that absolute moral responsibility that Levinas reminded us that we all have and we don't, we don't have to feel the guilt that comes along with it. So then the question becomes, what does real tzedakah look like in a world with gates uh, that we're not just going to tear down? And I think what we have to keep in mind is that tzedakah is fundamentally, for the rabbis, about confronting the other. Uh, it means giving tzedakah in a way that doesn't necessarily make us feel better, that's not going to wipe away all that guilt that we have that comes with that moral responsibility that we can never fully live up to. Uh, and it means giving tzedakah to an other who is not like us, an other who will never be inside our gate. Rather, they're going to always be strange and unsettling to us. Um, and when we keep all this in mind, what it means is tzedakah is really, really hard to give to that other who is outside our moral concern, who's outside of our gate. And this brings us to Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, and we'll, we'll finish with, um, with him. Um, Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, one of the great Hasidic rabbis, he's the great-grandson of the Baal Shem Tov, he really returns Hasidim, Hasidu to its radical roots uh, of, his, of his Zaidi, of his grandfather. By the time Rabbi Nachman comes around, Hasidim has uh, lost some of its edge. He really tries to bring that back, and you'll see that in the, uh, the following text. His Torah is definitely one of, of bringing comfort to the afflicted and afflicting the, the comfortable. Right? He really does that in all, in all aspects. Uh, but I think he also really understands the full implications of tzedakah, of our moral obligation to the other, as laid out by Levinas and Zizek, and as Chazal clearly are, are grappling with. Uh, for Rabbi Nachman, tzedakah, giving to the other, means turning cruelty, achzariyut, into compassion, to, into rachmanut. Uh, if you have to give to a monstrous other, uh, who's strange and different, um, and maybe scary and evil to you, um, it's not something you're going to want to do. It's going to be very, very hard to do. I mean, the act of real tzedakah, as Rabbi Nachman is going to call it, he calls it navoda. It's it's work. It's labor. Uh, is is something that is going to be hard. And he says here, initially, when a person begins donating to Ari tzedakah, right, he has to break this heartlessness and cruelty that they feel and turn it into compassion. This is the essential devotion of uh, tzedakah, right? When you encounter the other right? You don't want to give to them. You don't want to open up your wallet. You don't want to open up your hand to them. And we've all had this instinct in our lives in countless times, in countless moments. We know that internal feeling of just like, I don't want to give. I don't want to do this, right? And, and I think when we encounter the other who's a true other, right, that's when we really feel it, right? It's much easier to give when you can give to somebody who's like you. And it's much easier to give when you can give in a way that makes you feel like you've done, you've solved all the problems, Right? But that's not, that's, that's the, that doesn't happen very often, and, and, and it's not where 
the the true ethical act uh, lies for for certainly not for uh, Rabbi Nachman. Uh, and he says here, beginning the devotion of tzedakah is very difficult and demanding. Uh, uh, all devotions and all acts of repentance, he actually calls tzedakah a form of tshuva because it just fundamentally requires you to transform your whole orientation. Um, it's so difficult, he says, that you, you actually have to like moan and groan and make gesticulations as a way of, of like overcoming the internal resistance you have to be able to do it, right? That's what it requires to really give to the other to the one outside your gates, is it's like a fight. It's an internal fight that you have to have with yourself uh, to be able to do it. He says, you gotta cry out, oi, va, oi. Like, it's not something that's going to come easy. Uh, he actually likens it to, to the act of birth, to childbirth, uh, because it's so painful, uh, but also transformative, right? It actually brings something new, the ethical, a true moral ethical act to the other. It, it actually brings something new into existence. It brings the possibility of a, of a relationship into existence where there simply wasn't any, uh, any before. He says here, all tzedakah is a beginning. It's a hatchala. Um, it's a beginning in the sense uh, that it says in the book of Devarim uh, that you, you shall open your hand uh, to him, so the poor person, right? Every, even where, everywhere there's an opening uh, and a beginning already exists, charity opens more and more, widening the opening further. All beginnings are hard, he says, a famous rabbinic statement, right? In the very beginning of an, a true moral act of giving to the other uh, is incredibly, incredibly hard. Um, but for Rabbi Nachman, it's, it's a transformative act because, again, it brings you into relationship with somebody where there simply wasn't any relationship there before. Uh, and he talks about this idea of it making a, an opening of some kind. And what's interesting, part of the reason I like that, is that if you look back at that original Gemara from Baba Batra, it says you can build a gate on your neighbor, in your, in your courtyard, um, but that gate has to have an opening in it. Because you can have a gate, but there has to be a way for you to see the other, for the other to see you, for the other to stick their hand in, and for you to give to them. Uh, and, and without that, that opening in the gate, you know, it's, it's just a wall and a wall serves one fundamental purpose and that's to keep, uh, people out. Um, and the act of tzedakah is oftentimes about making sure that our gates have holes in them. They have windows in them, that they have a way that they can be open. So as I said, you can see the other, uh, you can give to them and, and they can, they can fundamentally receive. And I know for me in my own life, uh, part of the reason I'm drawn to this, this whole topic uh, is because I experienced it viscerally a lot as, as a synagogue rabbi. Uh, as a synagogue rabbi, I had a very diverse community socioeconomically, uh, and we were in a much larger community of Jews, uh, which meant that we had people who come to our shul all the time um, in need, Jews from all different places. <laughs> and uh, it's one thing, you know, when you're a rabbi trying to do tzedakah and organizing tzedakah for people inside your shul. You know them, you care about them, you feel for them, you know that your efforts are rewarded because you can see it. Like you can see how your, you know, your energy has an impact on them. They can change their lives. It's much harder when somebody just shows up at your doorstep. You don't know who they are and you know you probably will never see them again. Um, and oftentimes they come with a sob story and you, you don't know, do they really need it? Do they not? Is my helping them? Uh, maybe just encouraging them. You make those excuses like the rabbis did. You know, he's lying. They're deceiving me. I don't, I'm not really obligated here. I, I, you know, I can push them away. And, and I'm sorry to say, a lot of times people would come on my, uh, come to the shul I did not know. And I would let my, my cynicism or my skepticism or my guilt, I'm pushing away the guilt, you know, get the better of me. Uh, and I wouldn't give to them. And it took me a couple of years before I was able to force myself to consistently give to people who were really other to me. We said Haredim, ultra-Orthodox, come to the shul from Israel. 
Uh, and they were other in a, in a very different way. They didn't share my values. They would show up and come to my our daily minion with their hands out asking for money. Uh, and it was extraordinarily difficult for me to say, well, you know, do I give to you or not? Do you, is, this, is this where my responsibility is or not? Your values are, are so different from mine. Um, but what I learned is that if I was willing to and try, able to try to push myself, as Rabbi Nachman said, through that uh, great spiritual moral labor uh, that's like childbirth, of forcing myself to, uh, to give to the other, uh, that something you know transformative uh, can happen, um, and that's what the rabbis are striving for with tzedakah. Um, we live in a world of gates; uh, we can't avoid that. Um, but that doesn't absolve us of our responsibility to others. Uh, there's always an other out there we exclude, and tzedakah is all about striving to live up uh, to our moral responsibilities to them. And it's hard. It's you know a true moral ethical act is really hard. And if it's not hard, it's probably not the kind of moral ethical act um, that is directed towards a, uh, a true other. Wow. I'll end with that, Reb Shmuley. Wow, amazing. Thank you so much. That was so rich. There's just so much there. Thank you for um, giving over all that and so, so powerfully. Friends, let's open it up. Uh, feel free to unmute yourself if you would now like to... Um, uh, ask a question in our remaining 10 minutes. Well, I'll just add one more note because we are like heading into election season. I think, you know, for a lot of us, those who are in the alternative political party are very much an other for us, or a monstrous other. I mean, on both sides, and there may be some, you know, truth for that, but I think it's, you know, as I was preparing this year, I was thinking a lot about that. You know, who is, who is my other, who is our other? Uh, and the more ideologically polarized we become, the more there are others out there. And the more there are others out there, I mean, this is the experience of the Jewish people, like the greater there is, not just to moral exclusion, but to, uh, to violence. So I think this is something that we're, that we're living viscerally, whether we like it or not, that there, there are, there are more and more others, and, and there's something dangerous that comes along with that if we don't know how to, to be moral, to act, to, to strive to act ethically towards them. Yeah, one of, our one of our shared teachers, Rabbi Avi Weiss, in his book, Spiritual Activism, talks about how one of the principles of spiritual activism is how we perceive the, uh, the opposition in that regard, yeah. how you can robustly work for your cause, but never lose the dignity of the opposition in yeah. some sense. And it's, it's so hard. It's, it's, it's yeah. so hard. Look, one of the things I, I appreciate about Rav Shmuley is that, I mean, you're a friend of mine, so maybe it's, you know, you, you've been open to me because of that, but you're, all, you're very open when ethical acts are easier for you and when they're really hard for you. And I, and I like, and, I, and, and you don't just be, you're not just like, well, it's always easy. You just got to do the right thing. Like, no, morality isn't, like I said, if it's not hard, then you're, you're missing something, mm -hmm. uh, you know, fundamental. And uh, I think, you know, that's, that's an important thing too in our times where there's so many ethical challenges and dilemmas we're facing to pretend as if they're all easy and obvious it's just, you know, again, missing something fundamental because we do live in a world with gates in which, you know, there are going to be times where the, the moral decisions are quite complicated. Rabbi, if you have limited resources and time, which everyone does, there's no such thing as unlimited resources and unlimited time. If I, as a female, say, well, I don't want to donate to people who deny my humanity or my equality as a, as a Jew, it, is there something morally wrong with that? And I say, I want to pro prioritize my, my Jewish tzedakah to organizations that don't deny my humanity. 
Right. No, I, I think that's a very important point. And again, like our, our moral concerns should guide our, our, our tzedakah. So I think, you know, it's interesting about the, law, the, the halachot, the laws of tzedakah, is how they direct us to give. And so I think one of the things that they do, which is significant, is that when it comes to like causes and organizations, again, that's up, up to us to, to decide, you know, where we give and, and how we give. Right? There's no real halachot that can tell us, you know, you have to give to this organization or that organization. But where halacha is sort of um, inescapable is in, 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 in relation to those who are proximal to you, to geographically, physically, right? Meaning if you encounter a person like on the street, like you have a real obligation to them. Your neighbor, the person next to you, like you have, like who lives next to you, you have a real obligation to them. So in that sense, I think, you know, when it comes to the causes, you know, we can do what, you know, we should feel that we're justified to give where we give. But we have to also look around us, like literally around us. Who are, who are our neighbors, who are, live across the street, who are in my town? And regardless of, of what their ideologies might be or their beliefs, like uh, I have a moral obligation to them. I mean, we just can't escape that. And I think part of the challenge is making sure there's a space in our tzedakah to acknowledge that, right? That again, it's not that all tzedakah or all ethical acts have to be about giving to the other, but the problem is too often people's morality consists of never giving to the other. And, and that's, where it's a, that's where there's a real dilemma. I have, a, I have a, something to say on that, but I wanna see if someone else wants to share first. Yeah. Okay. So I, you know, I, I, Judy, it's it's a great question, and I and I think it's challenging. And I, and and Reb Zach, I'm interested to hear your thought on this. Do we care what others think of us, or what they believe, when in the need to support them? Let me give an example. Like 20ish years ago, there was a natural disaster in Iran, and a Jewish humanitarian relief group um, was going to offer aid, raise aid, and Iran said we won't accept Jewish money. And so the group had a, had a choice. Do we care more about saving lives? And so we're going to raise this money and donate this money. And, and we'll say it's not from Jews. Or do we care more about being in some respectful relationship? And if you don't want our money, Jewish money, then forget you. You go get your own money. You know, you, you can acknowledge it's from Jews or not. And so what's the right thing to do there? To save lives or to say like, um, you know, you don't acknowledge who I am. You don't acknowledge my dignity. So I want right. nothing to do with you. Or here's another case. I obviously don't think that everyone who's involved in Black Lives Matter is anti-Israel, although certainly people most certainly are. But do I care in supporting? Do I care when I say, oh, standing up for justice for black, for black men being killed matters enough that I will donate to you regardless of what you think of me or, or do for me? So too, one right. might say, if rape is wrong, you, you're always anti-rape. You don't say, oh, I'm only anti-rape in the case where the person being raped is someone who thinks I'm a good person or is a decent person herself. So, you know, rape is wrong regardless of who she is. So I wonder, like, and I wonder how we think about this. Like, sometimes we think, and Reb Zach, I'm curious, like, we, we, donating is almost investing in someone. I'm investing in your future because I care about you, as opposed to just a level of dignity itself. So... Curious. So I think, you know, I, again, there's never a singular answer to these questions. That's what makes them so... So, so tough. I'll say this. So, you know, I, I was kind of cheating a little bit with Levinas and, you know, in the way I was framing it that such that by giving to the other, it creates a relationship with them. That's not exactly the case for Levinas. For Levinas, you looking into the face of the other can also be understood as like almost looking into the abyss, um, that there can never be a real relationship with, their, with the otherness of the, of the other. It just, it is what it is. Um, and yet at the same time, I still have that moral obligation, meaning with, even without reciprocity, I still have that moral obligation. 
he says this in regards to like uh, Nazis, like we still have this ethical and moral obligation to them, even if they're you know, trying to kill us. Uh, on the other hand, as we saw, we, we, we always are gonna have to be balancing moral obligations to multiple places and multiple times. So like for the Iran example, like whether they acknowledge or accept us or not, if people are dying, like we have a responsibility. Um, on, for the Black Lives Matter, you know, question, again, then it may raise this issue of like all these competing moral obligations I have. You know, I, I, have, an I have an absolute obligation to people who are suffering from, you know, systemic, race, under, systemic racism, but if it's going to increase other aspects of immorality, you know, I have to balance that too, right? So Levinas is, a, is aware, uh, uh, you know, of that, um, of that dilemma. So look, I tend to, I'm a, I, I tend to be, a follower of Yushmali in the sense that like, we can't ignore the, our moral obligations, but at the same time, Levinas never says that, you know, that means we should pretend like the, the, the people we're giving to are perfect or are innocent, right? And that's the big problem. That's, that's where a lot of this, you know, you know, rubber hits the road. There is no perfect recipient of tzedakah. You learn that very quickly too, if you're a rabbi, right? Everybody who needs tzedakah, everybody who needs help, um, there's aspects of, about them that are innocent and deserving of grace. And there's aspects about them, like every human being, that are kind of horrific and scary. And, uh, and you kind of have to be willing to uh, acknowledge both of those and name both of those things. Um, and again, I, I think the goal is uh, just to do good and turn a blind eye to everything else. That's, that's also like a huge problem in its own right. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much, Rabbi Truboff. So much was packed into this hour um, of... Jewish import of demonstrating how other philosophers can be of value in thinking of various frameworks. And um, I'm very grateful uh, to you for calling in so late at night in Israel. And uh, friends, I hope you'll continue to, to uh, Google Rabbi Truboff because his writings always have academic depth and uh, spiritual fervor, moral, 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 morally robust. So uh, we look forward to continuing our learning together. We have stuff going on every day. So join us next week with all kinds of amazing things. Uh, just one thing to highlight, uh, uh, we're doing a rabbinic tribute to Rabbi Micah Kaplan of Blessed Memory, Monday at, from one to two, uh, about 10 rabbis are gonna offer some, some Torah uh, towards him. I have my Malacha, my, my Lamitet class uh, on Shabbat coming every Tuesday at 10, uh, um, and a whole bunch of other classes. Our Hammerman Lecture series, our Hammerman Lecture talk with uh, Daniel Gordis, is next Thursday at 11 to 1230. So uh, thank you, Rabbi Truboff. Thank you all for joining us.